Now we began to see something of this last year of Christ's life, of his ministry. He split his ministry into three rough portions. Uh, a year of inauguration, a year of popularity, and a year of opposition. And we've seen much already of why that opposition began. The two main things, if I sum up those sermons, the two main things are Christ will not capitulate to the expectations of the people. He will not show them the sign that they want. Now, he did show them signs, but they wanted different kinds of signs. And they were constantly testing him, no matter how many signs he did, because of their unbelief. And the rest of the opposition came from his teaching. It changed quite starkly and began to be about suffering. And we've seen how that caused problems, not only in the scribes and others, but in the disciples themselves. Who knew and loved the Lord, but it was a very weak and undeveloped love at this point. They were definitely committed to Him, uh, but they didn't understand even why exactly He had come. They had a lot of misunderstandings about the nature of Christian forgiveness and atonement and the nature of the Christian life that they must suffer through. That's not what they expected. And we saw that the, the transfiguration, and we looked at it for four sermons, the transfiguration comes in as a response to that. That's why God does it. Christ prays, and we saw why he prayed. He consecrated himself to his Father. The teaching had changed. He took three with him to teach them, and the transfiguration occurred. And we saw why that was so significant for him, and then for the disciples. And we saw last time um, that uh, it really, the, the, the pinnacle of the transfiguration, when God says, this is my son, hear him, but that's not just a general call for us to hear, because it's a good thing. It, it was a call to the disciples because they were not hearing what he was saying. They heard it, they, they listened, but they weren't really hearing what it meant, and they definitely weren't accepting it. They kept bringing up questions to oppose this message. And you'll see, uh, towards the end of the chapter, that's still really happening. Even in our chapter right now, verse 22 and 23, Jesus has to say again, even after this event, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. That's exactly what he said before the transfiguration. And it says they were exceedingly sorrowful, but a few verses later, they're arguing again about who would be the greatest. So you can see that they're not listening, and God called us two weeks ago as we looked at this, that we should all hear him properly, without blockage, and to accept his word lovingly and humbly. Sometimes his word is difficult, and it's not always easy to understand. It cuts against our desires and lots of our expectations. But I'm sure we all know, and we would all agree at least formally this morning, that that we, that we should listen to God. He, he is absolutely sovereign. And it is, it is uh, very unhealthy when we find in our heart these things coming out and say, no, it shall be this way. That's so unhealthy. You think about us telling God what to do. When you actually think about it, how ludicrous a thing it is. We have to listen and not fall into the same trap as Peter, especially. But they all have this problem and we listed the way in which they all had uh, this problem. What we see here is that they come down the mountain in the morning and we get uh, an incident that shows us how serious this problem is. So we've seen what the, the problem is. 
But we can see here that it definitely is still a problem, even though they've just seen what they've seen. And we can see that um, uh, it's a problem that's going to continue in the disciples. And Jesus reveals in this incident, not just that he says what this problem is, but we can see the kind of thing this problem causes. So we'll see this in our own lives. And it might be strange for you to think at the beginning, well, how can we relate to this incident here? But we'll see this is exactly the kind of thing we confront. And that the failure and the lack of preparation that the disciples have for this is exactly what we confront, sometimes even on a daily basis. A lot of us, even in here right now, myself included, a lot of us may actually have this problem even right now, especially in the generation we live in. So this incident, when they come down from this glory, they come down the mountain, and when they find the other nine disciples, there's another situation going on. God's doing something at the top of the mountain, but he's doing something at the bottom of the mountain. And what's happening is, the scribes and the crowds know roughly where Jesus is. They're searching for him constantly. He's gone into solitude, but they have found him because they found nine of his disciples. They know who these men are. These men are recognizable. And they find them. And a man that lives in a village nearby hears that Jesus is up this mountain. And he has a son, and he takes, well, he doesn't, well, he does, he takes the son to the foot of the mountain. Because he knows that the one who he has been told casts out demons and heals the sick and shows grace to the wounded and the downtrodden, he hears that he is there. And he takes the son, and what's basically happening is, this son at least has some kind of physical condition. It says um, in the NASB, it says that he's a lunatic. And it's kind of an unfortunate translation. That um, other translations say he has epilepsy. And people tr- struggle to translate this because um, the Greek word means moonstra. It's an old word in the old world that they used to describe someone who behaved this way. They said he's, he's gone mad and uh, is kind of connected to the moon. We still kind of talk that way. When there's a full moon, we say people behave differently in these things. And there's this mystery about the moon and the evening and the nighttime. So they say he's moonstruck. And what it basically is, is that periodically, as we read, uh, this boy has seizures and he grinds his teeth and he foams at the mouth. And no one really knows exactly why. The father has an idea why. He actually says in Mark's account that his son has a spirit that makes him mute. So the father at least believes that there's some kind of evil at work in this boy's life. And the Lord himself leaves us in no doubt that that was a big part of this. We're, we're told that in verse 18 of our chapter, Matthew 17 verse 18, that eventually Jesus rebuked the demon. So that's the authority there from God's word that tells us that there is a demon involved in this. And I just want you to notice, before we take a couple of lessons out of this, just notice that when God blesses his people, and he blesses Christ, and blesses three servants of Christ, with a great vision of his glory, and the presence of heaven, and a, a time of, of great soul blessing. Just notice that immediately the devil is there. Just notice that. 
he comes down and Jesus is immediately, one moment he's in the presence of the eternal Father and he hears his voice and sees the glory of heaven. And he immediately is then confronted by the reality in this world. So we, we have to be aware of that, to be careful of that too. Um, that when God blesses and comes near us, uh, when he's at work in a place or at work in a soul even, that's seeking out the Lord for the first time, someone who the Lord is bringing near him and is going through a conversion or regeneration experience, that the devil will not be far away from it. He's very interested in new believers. He's very interested whatever God begins to show his grace. And especially in the corporate people of God throughout history, we can say without doubt that whenever God moves and begins to bless and challenge and work and all of these things in people to shape them and fill them with his power, the devil sees that as a threat and he will come immediately to discourage and come in with his own spirit, his own words and his work. Where God works, the devil will almost come to immediately try and work around and in that situation. So just uh, notice that and remember it. This incident then unveils the, the disciples' true problem and we have to learn uh, from it. And you'll see how the Lord Jesus Christ responds to this situation. The, the man has come, he comes to the nine, he pleads with them to cast this out and to save the boy and heal him, and they can't. And we might make excuses for them that they don't know how to do it, that it's a difficult thing to do, and we may see ourselves in the disciples. But that's not how the Lord sees it. He comes down and he sees scribes assaulting the disciples and putting them down and taking advantage of the fact that they have failed in this area. Jesus sees the scribes who have rejected him and who have been pursuing him for his whole ministry and still will not let it go. They want to um, show that his ministry is not authentic. They want to undermine it in one way. The Lord sees that. He sees the disciples failing. And he sees a father coming in desperation, yes. And we do feel compassion for the father and the Lord will show compassion for the father. But the Lord doesn't, he doesn't smother butter on the Father. The, the Lord isn't the, the easy Lord that is being created by the 20th and 21st century church. In Mark, though the Lord has compassion on him, he does tell him. The man says, if you can do anything for us, please help. And the Lord says, well, what can you do? The man says, if you are able... And I think you might be, but if you are able, do something. And Jesus says, if you can believe. So the Lord comes down from this great experience as the Son of God, longing to save his people from their sins. And he's focused on the cross, and he comes down and he is surrounded by unbelief. And that's, that's the first thing that we're seeing. That the world is filled with unbelief, and at times, even the church is filled with unbelief. It's in the scribes, who are the official 
uh, ministers and theologians. It's in the disciples who belong to Christ. It's in the man. And it's just everywhere. The whole generation has rejected Christ as a generation. And Christ says that. All unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I bear with you? All faithless, unbelieving generation. And that is how the Lord sees the world, and we have to see it uh, that way too. That is the problem in the world all around us. It all stems from unbelief. We might say, well, what exactly is unbelief? Unbelief is just not accepting who God is and what he is like, and not accepting his word. And it's natural and inbuilt into fallen man to not accept that. It's men don't even need to think through the issues. There is a there is a propensity in the heart of man that just is diametrically opposed to the true nature of God and will not accept what he's like. It's not even that people are thinking, well, I've considered this and I don't think God is like this. The truth is by nature we feel we don't want God to be like that. Because it exposes sin, it, make, it, it puts us in a position of need. His righteousness is uncomfortable for us. We, we just don't like God because we want to rule ourselves. And Jesus sees that immediately. Even though it's in a strife, these aren't atheists. It's in the scribes and the disciples and even the man who wants help. And it bothers Jesus when he sees it. And we can be in no doubt that when the Lord Jesus Christ looks at the world today, looks at Meadville, and looks all around, when he looks at Cochranden, when he looks at Edinburgh, when he looks at Cambridge Springs, when he looks at Erie, and he looks all around, then this is the kind of thing he says. And you and I must be believers about what he says. We should accept uh, lovingly and openly what the Lord says about the condition of the world. This isn't, this isn't a little slight comment that Jesus makes. He says that it is just faithless and calls it perverse. And perverse means bent, crooked, and twisted, morally and spiritually. That is the problem in the world. But we see here that it's a problem in the church too, and it's a problem in the disciples. And that's the main point of this. Jesus isn't speaking to the Philistines here, or the Romans. He's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to those who know the word. He's speaking to those who pray every morning and say the Shema. He's speaking to those who know the Old Testament. He's speaking to those who attend worship every week. He's speaking to his own nine disciples and Peter, James, and John. Okay, they weren't included in the nine at the time, but they all have the same problem. And it is not, Jesus doesn't say, it's fine here, let's condemn the world. He's saying, the sin that the church has is, is the same sin. Sin is sin. And the, ch the church has sins that still persist in our hearts that are very much the same as the sins that the world has. And the problem is unbelief. My dear friends, do you have that problem and do I have that problem? Yes. Yes, we do. Sometimes in small doses, sometimes in very large doses. Sometimes when we're unaware of it, and we don't think that we're being unbelieving. But we haven't. 
Anytime we don't want God to be God, anytime we don't want His law to be His law, anytime uh, we don't want His character to be His character, and we cover it up, and we say, well, God's character can't be known. How can we truly know it? And everyone has different ideas about God. How, I, it's not that I'm unbelieving, I'm just open-minded. I don't know what God's like in this area, and I don't know what hell is like, or I don't know what God commands about this, but you can show someone, this is what God says about this, and they say, no, I, I need to think about that. It's up to me to accept that or not, and it's my judgment that matters. There it is, that's unbelief. The moment that it becomes our judgment, we have to seriously ask ourselves, is it because I am unbelieving? Because the true child of God, who does not have the problem that our brothers here in the passage, our friends, Peter, James, John, and the others, a true child of God who has had that broken and distilled out of his soul, says more what Samuel says, speak Lord for your servant ears. And that's it. Just tell me what you say, O Lord. Tell me what to do, O Lord. And I will do it. There's nothing that will stop me doing it. And tell me what you think about any issue, O Lord. And tell me what you want me to do with my life and what my life ought to be like. And tell me what the church is and what it ought to be like. And I have no problem with it. Why? Because you are the one that is saying it. And that's it. That's the difference between unbelief and faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith loves the word and it just eats it immediately. Unbelief looks at the word and pulls it apart and leaves things out. Unbelief doesn't like certain things that God is saying. We see uh, here with the disciples that they have developed a problem, that they don't like what Jesus began to teach them. They don't like the implications of it and the smell of it. Suffering, cross, us suffering too. And they do not want to embrace that. And just notice, uh, before we leave this, uh, friends, that um, if Jesus is saying that to us today, even in the visible church in our day, um, are we willing to accept Jesus' diagnosis of the world today and the church in the Western world in the 21st century? When is our Jesus, is our Christ, the actual Christ in heaven right now that's actually speaking? Is that actually who we think he is? Because he says here, faithless and perverse generation, and he says, how long shall I be with you? And how long shall I bear with you? Does your, is, does your Savior speak that way? Or will he never speak that way? If he never speaks that way, then lo and behold, you find that your Savior is one that's been created somehow. And, and then you've set up. But it's not the living flesh and blood Jesus Christ, because... If we love Christ, we'll know that when he looks at this generation, and when even he looks at his own beloved church, that there are times that he almost can't stand what's going on in his church. How long shall I be with you? His soul just reacts to it. The presence of the unbelief 
and the prayerlessness that causes this, just his soul reacts to it. He just doesn't like it. He's come from the fresh air of the transfiguration, and it, it hits him, and he just says, I can bear you up with this. How long shall I bear with you? Our Lord, remember, says things like that. And we just need to be aware of it. Though he, his love is towards us, and, and we are his, if we are believers, and all these things. Just remember, he does speak this way. And the church is in the book of Revelation. It's amazing what he says to them. You are, you have not become weary. You have served me. You have tested false apostles and cast them out. You have done all these things, he says to Ephesus. But I have this against you. You, you don't love me enough. Sardis, he says to Sardis, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. To Laodicea, he says, you think you're being greatly blessed, and that you can see, and that you have good things, and that the Lord is blessing you. But Christ says, you are lukewarm, and I have tasted you like a drink, and I want to spit you out of my mouth. Behold, I stand at the door and knock in judgment. That is Jesus Christ, real discriminating, wanting real faith and love and spirituality and repentance from us. And when it's not there, he doesn't pretend that everything's fine. He comes in grace and he tells us what is really there. So make sure that your Savior is the one who speaks here and that you are believing and that you accept that he does speak in that way. What is causing uh, this problem? What is the problem with the disciples? We see here that they are confronted with the kingdom of darkness and it exposes how undeveloped and unspiritual at this time that they are. The father rightly sees that his son is possessed and under the influence of the kingdom of darkness and the disciples are confronted with that without the Lord there. Let, let me just say something before we um, look at the disciples' impotence in dealing with it. Let us just say something about the kingdom of darkness itself and the fact that this demon is present so that we know what we're uh, talking about. During the ministry of Christ, there was an explosion of activity in the kingdom of darkness. And much of it was concentrated in the land of Israel. Because the kingdom of darkness knew that the Son of God had been born there. And that he was going to bring his kingdom to Israel at that time. And there's a concerted effort from the kingdom of darkness to attack that. You'll notice as you read the Old Testament... Um, that we don't come across this as often. There are certainly examples of it, and Satan is mentioned in the Old Testament. He attacks Job, and that gives us some insight. Uh, he's in the life of Saul, and there's, there's other examples too. But you'll notice as soon as the Gospels happen, there are people possessed by these evil spirits all over the place. And we can see that God allows it. And I think I said a few weeks ago when we mentioned an issue like this, I think I offered an explanation for that, that 
when God brought Christ into the world to shed light and to assault that kingdom, and when God's kingdom became more visible in the person of Christ, and his power was so present that God allowed the kingdom of darkness to show itself in a similar way. So you see in the ministry of Christ, all of a sudden, God's kingdom is there in power, and there's healing, and there's preaching, and the the dead are raised, and all of these things. But you see an unveiling also of the kingdom of darkness, and a more potent concentration of it. And it's horrifying to see this boy is actually possessed by one of these spirits. There's another man that's possessed by several of them, that many of you know, Legion. Jesus asked the demon-possessed man, what is your name? And he said, we are legion, for we are many. God allowed this in the ministry of Christ. So this boy is actually possessed. But we need to understand that we live in a different situation to what this man and his son lived in. Uh, this, son and, uh, this man and his son lived when Jesus was still in his humiliation, when he had not yet died on the cross, and he had not struck the death blow to save. He struck that death blow. He crushed the head of the serpent at Calvary. And there's a change when Jesus died and is raised in power and enthroned as king over all things. There is a change. Jesus himself says in John 12, Now is the prince of this world cast out. We are told in Revelation that at the death of Christ, Satan, the dragon, was cast out from heaven and confined to the earth, and his rage is great, and he goes against all the offspring um, of Christ. In Colossians 1, we're told by Paul that when Jesus died, he made a show and embarrassed and spoiled principalities and powers. And that spoil there is a reference to defeating someone in war and taking all of the spoil. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He struck a fatal blow to Satan spiritually at the cross. And Satan lost a lot of power, a lot of ability to move and operate, and a lot of authority. And when Jesus comes in authority and pours out the Spirit and builds his church, then he gives his church the strength to resist Satan. And not only is it confined to Israel anymore, that kingdom, the kingdom of light, spreads out throughout the world through Europe and all the way to North America. Satan is fighting a different battle now. He cannot possess a Christian. The Christian has the Holy Spirit, and that cannot be allowed to happen. The Holy Spirit has authority over the the demonic world. So we will not see this kind of prevalence of possession. I'm not willing to say that no one can ever be possessed. That's for another time, and we can discuss that sometime. I'm not willing to say it can never happen, but it definitely doesn't happen like this. Satan doesn't have the same movement. What he does have is an ability behind the scenes to influence the world and the church in the same way that he influenced this boy. So he may not possess people in the same way, but we're given an unveiling here to warn us what he's like and what he does. And he takes people by his snare, Paul says. He holds them captive to do his will, Paul says. 
Ephesians 6 tells us that we are to battle this kingdom of darkness as Christians. So let's just leave that there and remember that um, uh, though we may not see this visibly, we must be very aware that Satan does hold people captive and he is influencing them and he destroys them eventually like he destroys this boy. We have to be very careful about it and when we walk around Maple and our towns and our offices and all these places, wherever we are, we have to be aware that the kingdom of darkness is very present. It's not an idea, it's a danger to you and it's a danger to others. And we have to be aware that the people we interact with, they, they're not innocent, they're sinful and they've rebelled against God. And they're not operating just by themselves. We have to pity them because Satan has deceived them and he is active. And if you try to witness or influence someone, Satan sees that as a threat. And he doesn't just give people up. That is not what predators do. They hold on. And you, you just watch for that. It may not happen as visibly as this, but it will happen spiritually in the way that people think and talk with you. We're going to see next week more of the boy actually being possessed and how that's a picture of Satan possessing someone in sin and how Jesus liberates him. We're going to see that next week, so let's just leave this issue of the devil here right now. And just remember that he, he causes unbelief. This is a perverse generation that is even in the disciples of the church, and that they are no match for this kingdom. Satan is there, he has gripped this boy, he will not give him up, and the disciples completely fail. Let's see a couple of things in the few minutes we still have. Um, about how the disciples failed and how um, we are to deal with this. So thirdly, the disciples fail and we're told that they fail miserably. And it's kind of empathetic what the man has to say um, in verse 16. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. We're told in Mark's account, I brought them to your disciples, but they could not cast it out. They could not. And that's bad. That's bad. And it says something to the nine and the three, and it says something to me and something to you. They should have cast out this demon. They should have known what it was, and they should have cast it out. Matthew uh, chapter 10, just previously in the gospel we're looking at, Matthew 10 describes for us when Jesus sent out these twelve to preach for him. And Matthew 10 verse 1 says, When he called his disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. And when he gives them the command, and in chapter 10, uh, verse 8, he tells them what to do. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. He had given them the authority and power to heal the sick, even to raise the dead sometimes, but to cast out demons. And here they are. Later on in their ministry, 
and they can't cast out this demon. And it is a manifestation of the problem we saw two or three weeks ago when I listed for you all the examples in the surrounding chapters of them questioning him, of them not praying, of them sleeping, of Peter being offended and telling Christ what to do, of arguments about greatness, of misunderstandings about miracles. Jesus multiplied the loaves, and it said that the disciples didn't understand about the loaves and the fishes because their hearts were hard. And when they get in the boat and Jesus said, Beware of the leaven, the disciples respond, He's saying this because we didn't bring bread. And Jesus can't believe it. I'm not saying this because you haven't brought bread. I'm telling you that the leaven and the bread is like the sin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that you should be on guard against this leaven. But they didn't understand. Why? Because when we're not following properly, and we become complacent, and we're not listening to God, we drift. We don't know we've drifted. We just drift like a boat that's just a couple of degrees out, and it drifts, and you're not aware you're drifting. And then you think you're heeding God's word. You might even think you're praying, but there's no power in the prayer. There's no spirit in the prayer. There's no intelligence in the prayer. There's no bibliosity in the prayer. And there's no real accepting and willful listening of God's word that puts it into practice immediately on the Sunday night or the Monday morning. No, it just bounces off the hard heart. That's what's happening to these disciples. They had clearly loved Christ and they were so receptive to him at the beginning. And he gave them this power that by this time they have lost that power. They are like Samson, who said, I will arise as I went out before and free myself. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson compromised with his wife. It put him in a bad position, a compromised position with the Philistines. He committed adultery. And he had been filled with the Spirit, symbolized by his long hair and his Nazarite vow. And there was no one in the world at that time that had the Spirit of God like Samson did. And he went to bed that night, he allowed himself to be tied up, he was playing a game with this woman, and he told her his secret of his strength. And he thought, I'll just get up in the morning. He knew the Philistines were coming, and he kind of played a game with them. Uh, I'll just free myself as I did before. But awfully we're told, he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's what's going on here. The disciples think that they can tag along in any old way with, with Christ and make compromises and give up their prayer life and leave room for lots of other things that are going, that's going to dull their prayer life and their faith. And they're not aware that it's happened. And when the moment of trial comes, the decisive moment where they're called to do something, they're completely impotent and they can't do it. And that is what happens to us. That has certainly happened generally in the, in the church. The church which we love, it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will always have a church in the earth, but we're not to be... Um, flattering towards the church. God isn't. The prophets aren't. 
the apostles aren't. We have to analyze the church. We have to look at it century after century and see that God poured out his spirit and gave them power, our ancestors in the faith. And they did amazing things in God's name. And they overthrew entire continents. And they got the royal families and the leaders and everything to believe and to order their kingdoms according to the gospel. And thousands and thousands and thousands were saved. And ministers and preachers were given great liberty. There were thousands of people hearing the word of God. And the word and the preaching immediately connect with people's souls. And they're saved on the spot. That's what happens when the church is prayerful and dependent and near God. What happens when the church gets into the same problems as the disciples here is we are impotent and we don't know properly that the Lord has left us in some way. Will he forsake his people? No. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He won't take away our salvation. But we have to stop viewing the church as this thing that is always the same. It is not always the same. It is a dynamic organism. It can be starved of oxygen and nutrients and strength, just like our bodies can. None of us would look at someone who is struggling physically and who is utterly weak and say to them, Oh, you have the same strength as everyone else. No, we would notice the symptoms immediately. We must notice the symptoms here. Maybe the church in the Western world had its day like Samson did and was anointed and filled with power and went out against the Philistines and like Samson routed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He slew those evil Philistines before the Lord. But here he can't even tear a rope from his hands. That may be like us today. Like it says in the prophecy of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel looked at the temple and he said, I saw the Spirit of God lifted up, arising out of the temple and departing to Babylon. And the people stayed in that temple for years afterwards, giving their sacrifices and kneeling down and praying, and it was all in vain, for the Lord had departed. Do you recognize any of this, my dear brother and sister? That, um, that that is what we are up against. Read some history, read some biographies, and some diaries of Christians who've lived in the past, and not long ago, even just go back a hundred years. Be, be realistic about what God has done with his church in the West, and what's clearly happened in the 20th century is that the church became affluent, and it became materialistic, and it stopped being a spiritual organism, and it became a social and physical organism. And we are too involved in the world, and we don't say no to things so that we have time for God. We're not going in to pray to receive the strength and all of these things. And we're just born into it, and we're surrounded by it, and it influences us. This is just what we are. And Jesus says one more thing about this problem. Um, he doesn't only say that they couldn't cast it out. When they are surprised that they can't, and in verse 19 ask why they can't, why can we not cast it out? Jesus says to them, because of your unbelief, and in verse 21, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. 
and so forth. This time, this time, maybe they think it's a weak demon. Maybe they think they can cast out this demon even though they're not in the position they used to be. And that just the name of Jesus will deal with it. Maybe they don't realize who they're dealing with. Obviously there are different kinds of demonic grip. That as I was saying there are times of great blessing. Obviously when God sends a revival and blesses the church and the church grows and swallows entire continents. Obviously part of that work of God is that he binds Satan. He makes him less able to influence the church. And when the church starts to become unfaithful and compromising these things, one of the ways that God shows us that there's something wrong is he just loosens the collar of Satan. He just allows him more room. And that's, I think, what Jesus means here. He's saying to them, it's not that um, Satan is completely bound and that you can just go out as you did before and just automatically cast it out. But there's a problem here. This boy is foaming at the mouth and he's entirely possessed. And this kind of strong, this is a demon that is powerful and, and has full dominance over this. And you can't just say a prayer with Jesus' name on the end of it and deal with it. The disciples are shocked. And Jesus is telling us, be careful in the day we live. This kind cannot come out but by prayer and fasting. This kind. And what is this kind? It is the kind that, that God has taken away some of his power in the Western world. I keep saying Western world because that's what's going on. It's not China. It's not South America. It's the Western world that have the great blessing of God. China and these places are experiencing right now what we experienced in the 1700s and 1800s. That's what China is experiencing. We're beyond that. We've had our day of tasting the gospel for the first time and being amazed by it. The gospel is something we are taking for granted. The church and prayer and all these things are things we're taking for granted. And Jesus is saying, you've got to understand that Satan is gaining background here. That, that the USA and Western Europe and these places, they're filled with the kingdom of darkness. From the bottom end of the society right to the top, Satan has lots of room to operate. He is deceiving all these people. He is actively at work in people's lives, in covetousness, and in their sexuality, and all these things. Look at our society. Our society is not a, a result only of the sin of man. Our society is a result of what Satan wants. And if you want to know what kind of world Satan wants to build, just look around. We're in it. Jesus says, this time, this time is strong and powerful, and you don't stand a chance against this. And what is the solution to it? He sums it up in two small words. This time does not come out except by faith and fasting. In other words, it, it hasn't come out so far, disciples, because you aren't doing that, not like you used to. And he tells us the key here. The key is prayer and fasting. If we look at our cities and towns and the people around us, if we even want them to be saved, if we look at these situations, the only way that God will work is to prayer and fasting. 
which is the opposite to the first word in verse 20, because of your little faith or your unbelief. It really means a small, insignificant faith. These are two opposites. And uh, we have to ask ourselves, um, which category we want to be in, which one we want to go in. Do we want our unbelief to go or our prayer lives? Just, just take one little example as we bring this to a close. One, one example. If I say to you, I want to see the whole of Nepal converted and brought to Christ in the next ten years, what's your response to that? Is it verse 20 or verse 21? Do you, do you not think this place may be filled with people? Why is it filled with people? Because this time is at work. He's bound them and they, they can't be unbound. How will they become unbound? Not by our unbelief. Not by a view of Christ's lordship and kingship and um, authority over the kingdom of Satan. Not a view that looks up and confesses biblically that Christ is Lord, but then practically acts like he's not Lord. Is he Lord or not? When you look at people, or look at our times and everything, do you even think about them being saved? Or is it only one here, one there? If we are if we are like Christ, we will be greatly troubled by seeing entire towns and cities with no presence of God and no salvation. When we look around, when you drive through Maple today, or go back to your respective towns, and you pass people in their cars and you see them walking on the street, these people are going to hell. They are bound by the evil one. And it's our duty to set them free. By Christ, by his will, by his sovereignty, yes. But that's why we're here. That's why the kingdom of God is on earth. And the disciples can't do anything about the people in secret tired of Cambridge friends or people. The, the disciples could do nothing. Why? Because of their unbelief. They go to people and they try and speak to them and it has no effect because the preparation has not been done. What must we do? Prayer. Prayer. Not unbelief. Not small ambitions. Not small views of God's greatness and glory that the disciples have begun to embrace. Not small views of Christ. Not, not arguing and focusing on the physical and the material aspects of the kingdom, which the disciples were doing. No, our private spiritual lives before God are the heart and hub of everything that happens in the church. That is the church. The church is whatever our souls happen to be. And we make so many excuses by our outward morality and everything, that we hide a prayerless, unspiritual soul that goes nowhere near the heart and glory of God in our spare time. What is the answer? Prayer. Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is seeking the Almighty. Prayer is going in and having some comprehension of the glory of God and calling upon Him. It's hard, isn't it? 
We want to do other things. We have so little desire to do that. But do it like a good uh, do it like a good uh, diet that you're on. It takes a while to get on it. You're used to other tastes, but once you're on it for a while, you'll never look back. That's what prayer's like. Prayer isn't prayer isn't fatty food. It, it, it doesn't just you, you need to train yourself to pray. And lo and behold, if you pray, my friend, your prayers will grow. You must practice and set time to go in and pray before the Lord and have communion with God and communion with His glory. What does Isaiah say of the believers in His day? Does He say it of us? This is what God says in Isaiah chapter 64. There is no one who stirs himself up to take hold of me. He doesn't say there's no one who speaks for five minutes. He doesn't say there's no one who gives up a petition. But he says there's no one who stirs himself up to take hold of me. That takes time. To stir yourself up in prayer with a view of Christ's glory and kingdom and go to him with the right priorities for his glory and to ask him to save people and to revive the church and to make the church grow in Crawford County. That is what we're to, to pray. That is what stirring yourself up and praying means. It's not only asking God to bless your family. It's not only asking him for help. You must get your priorities right. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And then ask for your bread and the things you need. But your kingdom come. That's a healthy Christian. We cannot look around us without thinking, man, his kingdom's got to come. It's not here. Not in the way it could be. When Christ comes by force and binds the devil and throws him out, as it says in the parable. He binds the devil in these times. We must pray that Christ will bind the devil in all of these times that I've mentioned. Get on your knees alone and cry to him. Bind the devil in these times so that we can share the gospel with them and then they will all become members of our church. They will be saved. They will be our brothers and sisters and they wouldn't be hopeless and deceived by the devil. There is none that stirs himself and taketh hold of me. The prophet says in closing, in that day I will pour on the house of David the spirit of grace and supplication. It must come from God. And we don't have it. I don't have it. I may have had it before, but I don't have it either. Do I have the spirit of grace and supplication poured out upon me from on high? No. No. When that comes, there is a might in prayer. There is a supplicating. There is a pleading. You pray with the strength of the Holy Spirit himself. And you call upon Christ. And he honors that commitment to him. So let me say one last word as we close this up. Isn't that exciting? It is exciting. It is exciting to know that if you obey Christ in this area, that he will be very pleased 
to come through in power and answer your prayers. What is more exciting than that? And to be part of the salvation of others, to see the church grow, is an absolutely wonderful thing. Prayer isn't boring. Closeness to Christ isn't boring. It's an opportunity that if you change, if I change, if we go home right now and spend two hours in prayer to him and stir ourselves up and cry to him uh, genuinely and authentically with a real desire to see his kingdom come, he promises to answer that prayer. So remember that, friends, the unbelief of the generation causes all these things. The unbelief of the disciples made them impotent. Satan binds that boy. He binds our society. He's in there and he has a grip. And he has a strong grip. And though we may have been impotent in the past to the order, the call and the gracious, wonderful promise is that if we seek him and cry to him, we will see a huge difference together as a congregation and we will see the glory of God. We'll see next week what the Lord actually does for this boy because he himself is not impotent. May the Lord bless these thoughts upon his word. Let's stand together to pray. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would teach us uh, to call upon you and to hallow your name and find that name glorious and that we would pray your kingdom come. Give us a great view of your kingdom. Give us a great view of your name. Teach us what it is to be near you and to be in awe of you. O oh Lord, help us all to become praying people those who spend much time with the Lord and who seek his face for without me you can do nothing and unless you abide in the vine you cannot bring forth fruit and this time cannot come out except we pray in this way so show us how to do it O Lord and bless us in this place and may we know the joy one day soon of seeing our fellow men and women delivered from darkness, that we would join with them in this place and praise your great name. Grant us success, grant us joy, and grant us your great blessing in this place. O oh Lord, we long to see you. We long to see your power. We ask that you would make it so. Pardon our sins in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.